today on Ag News Daily. The message that we can get out there that agriculture is being sustainable, I think more and more people would be interested to learn how it's being sustainable and then what are some things they can do as well to kind of play their part. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Delaney Howell here on the Ag News Daily Podcast, joined by Mike Pearson. If you hear a little background noise, it's because Mike is hitting the road today. He's not driving, so it's safe for you to do the podcast, though, Mike. Absolutely. We've got Ted Seifert here as the wheel man behind the wheel of our 2020 Jeep Wrangler (laughs) four-door. We are zipping up Interstate 29 at the (coughs) speed limit, if anybody is listening (laughs) in law enforcement in South Dakota. And, no, we're heading up where we're, Ted and I are really excited. We get to work with some growers up here in South Dakota, some uh, some Golden Harvest uh, farmers. So we're, we're chit-chat. You know, we came in yesterday to an extremely cold mm-hmm. evening. We had a bunch of growers willing to brave the cold, come out for a steak, and uh, listen to our insights on the market. And uh, tonight we're going to do the same. So it's going uh, to be a good time. Yeah, actually, speaking of the weather, Mike, I was watching on the news today. I don't know. I couldn't hear if it was all of the u.s or just in des moines area at least the coldest february 13th in 115 years wow i, I bet that's just des moines but it is it is darn cold up here in south dakota i know yeah. chicago is getting some very very cold weather today so it is this arctic blast is moving its way across the country i know i was hoping we could skate by this year without some cold cold weather but it appears that's not the case mother nature has different ideas in mind oh yeah yeah, Mother Nature, she's uh, a something. <laughs> I know what you're going to say, but you can't say it on the podcast because we've got to clean our, keep our clean rating. A lady dog. <laughs> okay, that's a good way around that. <laughs> yeah. Well, Delaney, I'll tell you what. Other than the weather news, there is some news in the world of agriculture. Um, we have been talking since Phase 1, the Phase 1 agreement with China was signed that uh, you know, we're going to need to see China step into U.S. ag markets and begin buying either soybeans or pork, or the conversation was perhaps China's going to step in and replenish their corn stockpile by buying some U.S. corn. Well, it was reported earlier today that if that's going to happen, it's not going to happen anytime soon. China stepped in overnight and purchased about 500,000 metric tons of corn out of the Ukraine, and the Chinese trader was quoted as saying they don't anticipate purchasing any U.S. corn anytime soon. So that was a, a bit of a disappointment there on top of lackluster export sales reported this morning. So, you know, definitely not a bullish day in the trade when we're looking at the corn market. Yeah, I've actually got quite a bit of Chinese-related news as well, Mike. The one of, one of which is the other commodity that we were hoping to see them increase imports of was U.S. chicken, and we saw several shipments of U.S. chicken head towards China, but are now being diverted to South Korea and Hong Kong because of the disruption at Chinese ports due to the coronavirus outbreak. We are seeing this as a major setback for the U.S. poultry industry, which, of course, as a reminder, just had access to the Chinese market in November was when we saw that ban lifted. So that is kind of a little hitch in their giddy up. But on the coronavirus side of things as well, Mike, we've talked a lot about those ports, having transportation issues, getting products from the port to parts of the country that need food and agricultural products. But not only that, we are continuing to see coronavirus spread rapidly across China. They have just reported an additional 15,000, basically 15,200 cases. And 
they are raising their deaths by about 254 deaths per day. And now, of course, Ooh, comparing this, day. yes, comparing this to the common cold, it's still not as comparable when you look at it on a per year basis, but a per day basis is where this number really is shocking. Yeah. So, I mean, up till now, they've reported about a thousand total deaths from coronavirus, but now they're saying that's going to be 254 deaths per day. That's what I've seen, according to some WH World Health Organization officials. <laughs> Man, that is that's bad news bears right there. Now you really don't want to come down with yeah. coronavirus. Well, and so the other thing of that, and again, we've talked about this on the podcast before, is these 15,000 deaths that are now being reported by China, did these happen all at one period? Was Has this been going on since December? We don't really know that information. All right. Well, yeah, I mean, getting information out of China is like pulling teeth. So right, right. coronavirus should be no exception. Right. But the other piece of that is we've kind of been waiting to see whether or not China will ask for relief, officially ask for relief from their responsibilities as part of the U.S. phase one, U.S.-China phase one deal. And we haven't seen any official word from them yet. They haven't notified the U.S. officially asking for a delay in their trade deal commitments. But because of the coronavirus, again, we're seeing White House folks, including Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, told the Senate Finance Committee on Wednesday that implementation of this phase one has definitely slowed down because of the coronavirus. And it's going to take about another two to four weeks to really be able to evaluate the economic impact this is going to have on the Chinese economy. So it sound, that, to me, makes it sound like at least another month before we figure out what the heck is going on. Yeah, that's frustrating. And, you know, I think a reminder to all the listeners that the phase one of the China deal technically doesn't begin until the 15th of this month. So on Saturday is when the, uh, uh, I think late tomorrow night, is when some of those tariffs get rolled back. But more importantly, that's when China's purchase commitments are expected to kick in. Right, which may not happen now, it sounds like. All right. Well, as long as we're talking trade news, that is not exactly sunshine and roses, we got an update from Secretary Sonny Perdue about the U.S.-EU trade agreement. Um, Secretary Perdue and the U.S. trade team have been pushing the European Union to change a lot of its sanitary and phytosanitary rules regarding, in particular, um, protein imports into those countries. And basically, the U.S. is saying, hey, base your rules on sound science. That's a quote that uh, Secretary Perdue has been using quite a bit. If the scientific community deems these products safe, then they should by all means be allowed to be imported. Well, the EU is pushing back on that, and they're reaching all the way back to 2003, and they are saying the reason they are dragging their feet on protein imports in particular is because of the mad cow scare, the BSE outbreak that happened in the U.S. with the one cow in 2003. They are saying that has their concerns raised and... They just really don't want to negotiate with President Trump. In fact, the quote from the uh, I don't know, European fellow, whose last name I can't pronounce, Johan Bjorkum, who is a trade specialist at the European Policy Center, said that on top of that, the mad cow issue, you're negotiating with Trump, for whom not many Europeans have great sympathy. Combine these two things, and it will be very difficult to accept a deal on those issues, referring specifically to the uh, sanitary and phytosanitary concerns that could hamstring this U.S.-EU trade deal when it comes to agriculture. When it comes to manufactured goods, labor, you know, technology, 
those kind of things are all probably going to move forward fairly smoothly. But ag is going to be the stick in the mud since both the U.S. and the EU are countries that do have substantial support for their ag sectors from the government. Yeah, it always kills me that they have a holdup over one cow. Right. Yeah, the cow that stole Christmas. <laughs> that's a good way to put it, Mike. Well, that's what that's what you call. Oh, okay. I remember that. Day. I thought that we was were, a we were term. Some cows. Oh no, no, that's a no. Lord, no, I'm not that clever. <laughs> no, the cow that stole Christmas. That was uh, 2003. Canadian cow. I think it should be mentioned. Imported into the U.S. So really, we didn't even have BSC. It was a darn Canadian. Darn. Shipped them. it over the border. Just kidding. We appreciate our Canadian listeners. Darn Canadians. Go back to Tim Horton. You cannot <laughs> eat some poutine. Actually, Tim Hortons is one of the only major chains that have kicked out plant-based proteins because they didn't go over well with consumers. Right. I'm glad you brought that up, Delaney. Yeah, Tim Hortons announced, what, last week that yeah. they are pulling yep. all the fake meats from their menu because consumers just didn't like it. We applaud them for that. Absolutely. Well, what other news do you have, Delaney? I just have one other interesting piece of news, I think, that leaves open the door again for a 2020 market facilitation payment program. We saw folks from the... Excuse me. We saw folks from the nation's Farm Credit Bank meeting last week in Washington, D.C., and they really left the door wide open. They said, based off of their research and talking to producers and whatnot, this phase one trade deal with China and other agreements could substantiate a need for another MFP payment in 2020. Yeah, you know, that's something that uh, Ted Seifert was talking about last night at our meal. It, it is an election year. It's an election year. Unless China does that, then unless we see the market prices recover, we're going to figure out some way to get dollars from D.C. out to farmers. Yes, I think that's kind of the general consensus. Well, I want to swing it back north, the Great White North there in Canada. We spoke, oh, about three weeks ago about how Farmers Business Network was suing some major agricultural suppliers in western Canada, alleging that those suppliers worked together to block FBM from doing business in those uh, provinces. Well, earlier today, or late yesterday, I should say, a Canadian federal court came out and they ordered a group of major ag companies, so this includes, uh, let me find them here, Bayer, Corteva, and BASF, were all required now to turn over records and communications that might have pertained to doing business or not doing business with Farmers Business Network when FBN attempted to expand into Western Canada. This is an antitrust case, and Canadian antitrust rules are very different than U.S., so I'm not exactly familiar with what needs to be proven for this thing to be uh to move forward down the court system, but this is definitely the first step. So we are seeing FBN kind of notch their first legal victory in this court case, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what comes out as discovery moves forward. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on that for sure as well. Welcome to the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. I am Ray Bohax from the Idle Chatter podcast heard on the Global Ag Network. You check the oil in your engines... 
test the soil before planting and check the moisture of your grain and hay. Then why are you not testing the quality of the AC voltage coming into your farm? Just because an electrical device functions does not mean it is being supplied with the proper voltage or frequency in hertz. If either is off, the result can be premature failure or electric motors that do not start or kick off due to thermal overload. This is especially important if you are using a generator, but the power from the utility could be just as suspect. For around $70, you can purchase a meter that plugs into a wall socket and with a glance will confirm the integrity of the voltage into your building. You may be surprised at what you find. Agriculture runs on machinery, profits on reliability. Yes, ma'am. Well, Delaney, I'll tell you what, should we take a look and see where the market's wrapped up for the day? I think we should. Let's do it, Mike. Let's. We had mixed trade in the grains, corn and wheat down, beans up slightly on the day, although off their highs uh, fairly substantially. In the corn market, the March corn was down three and a quarter cents at three seventy nine and three quarters. The May contract dropped two and a half to close at three eighty four and three quarters. In soybeans, March was up four and a quarter cents, closing at eight ninety six and three quarters. The May up two and a half, wrapping the day at nine oh six even. In Chicago wheat, March contract dropped six and a quarter cents, closing at five forty one and a quarter. The May down six and a half, finishing up at five forty two even. Looking over at the world of livestock, we had green on the screen in almost all the meats. Uh, lean hogs were the only exception at mixed trade in lean hogs. Over at live cattle, the April contract was up sixty seven and a half cents at one eighteen fifty two half. June up seventy cents on the day to close at one ten sixty two fifty. Feeder cattle, big moves to the upside. The March contract up a dollar twenty-seven and a half to wrap at one thirty-six thirty-two fifty. April, dollar seventy-seven and a half higher, closing at one thirty-eight ninety-five. And in lean hogs, that April contract was up thirty cents on the day at sixty-four oh seven fifty, while the May dropped ten to close at seventy-two eighty-five. Looking over at our friends in the dairy sector, Class Three milk saw a little bit of weakness today. The February contract was down two cents at seventeen oh one. The March off seventeen cents on the day to close at seventeen twelve. Delaney, why don't you tell us who we're talking to in today's interview? Well, Mike, we had a great conversation for today's podcast with Trevor Williams, who is another co-podcaster, coming to us from Florida. So let's kick it off to our conversation with Trevor. We are very excited to be joined today by Trevor Williams, host of the Farm Traveler podcast, and we're going to get to that here in just a little bit. Trevor, first of all, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Delaney and Mike. Super excited to be on. And Trevor, I wanted to ask a little bit about your background in agriculture. You are down there in, we're not even going to say sunny Florida, but you're down there in sunny Florida doing ag a little bit different than some of our listeners up here in the Midwest. Tell us a little bit about how you grew up in agriculture, your background in agriculture, and did you live in Florida all of your life or did that, or did something take you down there? Yeah, sure. Well, I'm a, um, I'm 28. So I've been in Florida for 28 years. So lifelong Floridian. Um, I was super active in FFA in high school and went on to be an ag teacher in Daytona beach, Florida for about two years. And now I'm back up in Panama city um, I'm doing software development, so I'm a little bit different. I'm not exactly in ag right now until I started the podcast. So, yeah, my family's always been kind of active in agriculture. My grandpa had a catfish farm behind our house with like six or seven ponds that we would always go catch and sing the ponds and ship off the fish, which was always really fun. So 
I started the podcast about a year ago because I missed being kind of active in the ag industry and so started it. It's been going for about a year. I've interviewed some really cool people. So it's kind of cool to kind of interview and see what's going on kind of around the world and around the country agriculture-wise to see all the different things people are doing to kind of contribute to feeding our ever-growing population. It is cool. Trevor, there is so many differences and, and millions of facets when you look at agriculture in different locations. What was it? What was kind of the question in your mind when you decided to launch the Farm Traveler podcast? What was what was the real motivating factor for you to say, you know what, I, I want to learn about this sort of thing? Yeah. So the biggest reason is that, I mean, the average person is so removed from from agriculture. They have no idea what's going on in the farm. And it's really I'm really looking at the Farm Traveler podcast as being like a way where we can kind of bridge the gap between the farmer and the consumer. So it's really for anybody that's interested to learn where their food comes from and also for anybody in the ag industry to learn what's going on in different places around the country and around the world. So we've had some really good guests from dairy farmers in Oregon to the UK. We've had Dr. Folta from the University of Florida talk about GMOs. We've had a lot of guests on. So we're hoping to kind of grow our list of diverse guests and kind of learn all the stuff that's going on in agriculture. Because like, I mean, people that are in ag, they know that it's so diverse. There's so many disciplines and so many concepts that are going on. It's you, you could take a lifetime and never learn all that there is to learn in agriculture. So that was kind of the whole idea behind the podcast. That's really neat. I think that the industry needs something like this to bridge the cap gap between consumers and also agriculture. But Trevor, what kind of feedback have you gotten from maybe some of those folks who are removed from agriculture? Yeah, the feedback I've gotten from from people has been really cool. I mean, just from comments on our YouTube videos or on Instagram has been really neat. And even from friends and family that have listened to it, they're like, oh, man, I had no idea that dairy farms were like that in the UK, or I didn't know that all that research and studies went into developing GMOs. So the, re- the, the feedback has been really, really cool to kind of see that people are actually learning and they're actually taking the time to not only do research themselves, but they're looking – because I keep telling people, like, what everybody's using social media right now. So go on your favorite social platform and just follow a farmer. Like, that's it. If you're on Instagram or Facebook, just follow somebody that's active in the ag industry on sharing their message and see what they're doing. And I've had a lot of people do that, and they're like, it's actually really cool to kind of see the point of view perspective that farmers are doing from growing row crops or raising dairy cattle or something like that. So the feedback has been really cool, and it kind of keeps you – I mean, the podcast industry is booming. You guys probably know this. So it's kind of cool to have really positive feedback for for your show. Oh, it certainly is. It's always fun to get positive affirmations. I think we all love that. And Trevor, when you think of the Farm Traveler podcast, what, I guess, for listeners who haven't yet heard it, are you actually making the trip to Oregon to talk to these growers? Or does the magic of communication allow you to stay in Panama City and just conduct the interview with people you get plugged into? So the dream, the dream is to travel to all these places, actually interview them one-on-one. But luckily, through the magic of the Internet, I'm able to interview people via Skype or Zoom and really just wherever we can interview them, which I always tell them, like, hey, I know you're busy. Whatever works best for your schedule. So luckily, I've been very fortunate to interview them online. But uh, one day, hope to take the, the show on the road, which will be really cool, and interview them in person and kind of see what's actually going on on their operations. That'll be really neat to get to that point. And Trevor, looking at your website, thefarmtraveler.com, it looks like you also have not only your podcast, but also some articles and, as you mentioned, YouTube videos. Tell us a little bit more about what you're doing in those two revenue or those two media streams. 
Yeah, absolutely. So our articles are kind of based off of um, our podcast episodes. So we have like additional content, some show notes and stuff like that. And our YouTube videos, we're trying to have a bigger YouTube presence, but it's kind of difficult to, you know, have a full-time job to podcast and make YouTube videos. But we're slowly making more and more videos to where it kind of gives viewers and listeners a like something tactile that they can do to actually bridge the gap between farmers and the consumers. So actually like we go through in one episode, we kind of go through one of our podcast episodes and we talk about what you can actually do to follow the story of agriculture. That's simply just to follow a farmer. And so we're working on another one with one of our recent guests, Michelle Payne, talking about food bullying. And in that video, we're going to talk about what are some tactile things that you can do to avoid false claims on labels whenever you go to the grocery store. So when I was when I was teaching, we learned a lot about using different learning modalities, whether that's learning, teaching um, students that are visual learners, auditorial learners or kinesthetic. So the whole goal of the of the website and our YouTube channel, for example, is to make sure that we have we, we kind of work on those three learning modalities. The podcasts are for the auditory learners. The YouTube videos can be for the visual and kinesthetic. So that way everybody can kind of learn in their own little niche. That is very cool. You know, you think about the different educator intelligence types, the different learning styles, as you mentioned, it, it does have a huge impact on how people can interact with the content. And Trevor, when you think about your experience as an FFA teacher to now working in software development, working is, outside the world of agriculture, what have you seen when it comes to consumers learning about our industry? You mentioned this is part of the uh, bridging that gap. Do you think that folks have had the challenge of learning about agriculture just because we weren't presenting the information in a way that they could take in? Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I, I think the issue boils down to farmers and ranchers are putting out great information. It's just that consumers don't really know where to go get that information and see that information at. And I mean, you know, I've said this in a bunch of podcasts with guests. Um, I mean, y'all probably know this as well, but we're kind of living in the fake news culture right now. And so there's just so much misinformation out there. I mean, there's, there are health bloggers out there that have right and wrong information. There's um, people like myself in the ag industry kind of interviewing people that have right and wrong information. And so consumers don't really know where to go to get correct factual information on where their food comes from. And, um, with our recent interview with Michelle Payne, she she hit the nail on the head. W- whenever a consumer goes to the grocery store, they're not trying – they're usually, nine times out of ten, not trying to protest, protest with their dollar. They're just trying to make the smartest, healthy choice that they think is going to be for their family. And so I think hopefully we can continue to bridge the gap because consumers are eager and they want to learn where their food comes from. They just don't know the correct and scientific resources to go and actually look up the correct information. So it's it's a good fight because I think more and more consumers are getting interested. I mean, like the whole farm to table movement years ago is still kind of going on where people want to eat local. They want to meet with farmers and go to farmers markets where they can see people actually grow their produce. So the interest is definitely there. I think that we in the agriculture industry can do a little bit better job of kind of broadcasting that information. And then consumers as well can do a little bit better of a job at making that making sure that the research that they find is from a very like reliable source. Yeah, it's also been explained to me too, Trevor, which I think makes sense that, quite frankly, re- or, um, consumers don't care about the science behind their food. At the end of the day, they want to feel an emotional connection or feel like they're doing good, quote-unquote, for either the environment or a farmer or whatever. Do you agree with that kind of sentiment as well? Or do you think 
no, consumers actually do want to know the research behind their food. Yeah, you know, I think it's kind of 50-50. I mean, I think there's people out there that just want to eat. They don't really care where their food comes from. They just want some healthy food and that's it. But I think, I mean, I think consumers are getting more and more environmentally conscious and, and they want to know that their food is being raised sustainably, sustainably that their um, like the meat is being raised sustainably. So I think it's kind of 50-50. I think some people are very curious to learn where it comes from, and some people just want healthy food, and that's really it. But I think the more the message that we can get out there that agriculture is being sustainable, I think more and more people would be interested to learn how it's being sustainable and then what are some things they can do as well to kind of play their part in sustainability and helping sure that you know we have enough food to feed like 7 billion people. I think 9 billion people coming up in like 30 <laughs> years. So we definitely have a lot of people to feed. We definitely do. And Trevor, that leads me kind of to my last question, at least. And what's what do you make of the alternative protein or the alternative dairy products? Do you see a lot of people in Florida turning to those products like almond juice or plant-based proteins? And have you interviewed anybody about those on your podcast? Yeah, you know, that's very interesting. I've I've interviewed a, a couple of beef ranchers and, I, and dairy farmers, and I talked to them about it. They're like, yeah, I don't really know how I feel about it, but it's good that there's another consumer choice. I mean, I'm all for consumer choice. If you if you are like super lactose intolerant and you can't drink cow milk, so but you have almond milk, soy milk, and all that stuff, that's great. I honestly don't really know how I feel about rice milk. That just doesn't sound super appetizing. But, I mean, it's great that consumers are getting another choice. Um, I'm all for that. And with the regards with like fake meat and stuff like that. I mean, I know those food scientists are doing their best to make it look, smell and taste just like real meat. And so, I mean, I think it's another consumer choice. It's, I think we can do some, some good research on figuring out if, if most people in the U S or around the world eat these fake meats, what's the global impact going to be on using those vegetable, those vegetables and fruits to make those fake meats as opposed to, you know, regular livestock. So I think it's great. I think, uh, I don't know. I, I feel like I, I saw something from Impossible Foods on, on their Instagram page, and they were saying that their goal is to completely replace animal agriculture. And I do not think that that is ever going to happen. I think traditional agriculture is, of course, always going to be around. Beef farms are always going to be around. And I think both industries to feed the world, which I know it sounds really cheesy, but I think both industries, fake meat and real meat, need to kind of like work together because it's a problem that we are all facing. And that's, I mean, whether or not you believe in climate change or sustainable agriculture or just reducing our impact on the environment, I think that a key thing would be for both industries to kind of work together to kind of not only feed the world, but also have kind of a lesser impact on the environment whenever we produce our food. So it's very interesting. It's always kind of interesting to learn um, all the stuff that's being produced out there because it seems like every other day another plant-based meat is coming out with another product. So it's very interesting for sure. Yeah, we are in a uh, we're in interesting times, to put it mildly. Trevor, when you think about the future of the Farm Traveler podcast, what are some places – or some producers you'd really like to talk to that you maybe haven't had the chance to connect with yet. Oh, man. You know, I, I'm all into hydroponics. There's a big one in New York called Gotham Greens, and I'm really trying to get on the show to kind of talk to them about how they're taking large-scale hydroponics and kind of growing it and being super successful. There's also another person, I think Stephen Ritz in New York. He's very active with um, teaching high school kids and elementary school and middle school kids about um the the impact they can have on agriculture and stuff like that and 
And we've had some international guests. I'm always, we've had some guests from Saudi Arabia, the UK, Canada. So I'm really eager to learn more from possibly like some lower developed countries and see what's going on in those countries. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get some more and more people on the, on the show. We haven't really had any pork or poultry producers on the show yet. We've had, which funny story, we had a butterball episode a few months ago for Thanksgiving. And then the farmer we had on, he didn't mention it. But the contract grower, um, a few weeks later, two of his turkeys got pardoned by Trump. And I was like, what? That's so cool. So it was just like a little, it was like, oh, hey, I know that guy. So, I mean, we're looking to have like some pork producers on the road. I want to have some more um, ag scientists and possibly some food scientists down the road. So anybody and everybody interested in being on the show or interested in sharing their story about agriculture, we would love to hear from you and love to share your story. Well, Trevor, if folks would like to reach out to you or listen to your podcast, how can they do that? Absolutely. So we are on um, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you listen to podcasts on. We are just simply the Farm Traveler podcast or just Farm Traveler. You can just look us up on there. We have weekly episodes that come out every Wednesday. Our website, like you said earlier, is just thefarmtraveler.com. And we're super active on Facebook, just facebook.com slash farmtraveler and Instagram farmtraveler. Basically, wherever you are social media wise or on the Internet, just look up Farm Traveler and you will find us. Awesome. Well, Trevor, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Delaney and Mike. Really appreciate it. Great talking with you. Well, a big thanks to uh, Trevor Williams for taking the time to chat with us. Folks, check that out, thefarmtraveler.com. See what all he's got going on there. And if you are a pork producer or a poultry producer, get in touch with us. Let's get those stories told. Let's bridge that gap between the farmer and the consumer. Absolutely, Mike. Great plug there for Trevor. But we are also not necessarily working to bridge the gap between consumers and agriculture, but definitely from farmer to farmer. We've got a ton of great farmer episodes, farmer-focused episodes on the Ag News Daily podcast. Check us out at Ag News Daily on social media, as well as agnewsdaily.com to listen to some of those past episodes. Mike, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.